Welcome to another episode of On the Issues with Alon Benmir. Today's guests are the Honorable Paul Johnson, former mayor of Phoenix, Arizona, and Dr. Emily Bashaw, a clinical psychologist. Paul and Emily are the authors of the book Addictive Ideologies, where they discuss the psychology that leads to terrorism and strategies to combat extremism. In this episode, Alon, Paul, and Emily use the experience of the Jewish population of Iraq to discuss radicalized ideologies in society and how they develop and spread on an individual and societal basis, the growing polarization in the United States and around the world, and what steps can be taken to resolve the increasing divide. Well, uh, first of all, I want to thank you both, Paul and Emily, for taking the time to discuss um, your book in particular, and hopefully we will touch on some other subject matter specifically related to various conflicts, um, conflict resolution, which in which, you know, which is my field of endeavors being now for, I hate to say it, for more than four decades. So, <laughs> uh, but uh, let, let, let me begin, uh, Emily, by asking you, uh, what to prompt you to write the book in the first place? Thank you, Alon, for having us on your show. It's a great honor, really. That's um, my so, pleasure. Thank you. So, you know, my parents survived uh, persecution during the rise of the Ba'ath Party in Iraq um, solely for being Jewish. And I, I was born in Canada with great privilege and growing up in the States as well. And when I was about 11 or 12 years old, I asked myself the question, how is it possible that people in mass can promote and permit such mass atrocities to a people and just turn on my family in a moment's notice. What is going on inside of the human psyche? What is going on socially that people can conform to what leaders are telling them to do? And I really committed myself to this question and I wanted to honor their story. It, this it, Last year, actually, when we had published the book, it marked the 50th memorial anniversary uh, for when my grandfather was abducted by the Ba'ath Party and was never seen or heard from again. He was placed in an underground jail that they called the Palace of No Return. Yes. Uh, my my family uh, you know, went through... Uh, so much. There were they were terrorized. Their neighbors, their peers at school, business partners of my grandfather. Everyone just in a moment's notice started to turn on them, and they had been there for so many generations, hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, the Babylonian Jewish history is very rich and. And so I committed myself to that question and I really wanted to expose that question because I saw and Paul and I both saw that this doesn't just happen in Iraq. This isn't just a historical anomaly. Um, there's a lot that we can learn from this case study and case illustration. And it's happened all over the world. And in fact, it's been repeated through acts of genocide and terrorism, and even happening nationally in the US with the political divides that we're seeing here today. We are not immune from these kinds of atrocities happening again. And we're very concerned. We wanna highlight the risk factors, 
but we also want to promote self-agency so that people don't just join in mass and do something that you cannot go back and reclaim the freedom and the liberties um, and the individual prosperities and things that were granted to you before that these are important to be able to protect. And so we devoted ourselves to sharing my parents' story, my story also as a forensic psychologist, um, doing evaluations for people who are looking at facing life sentences in prison, even for capital crimes, facing possible execution because of their crimes, either for terrorist charges, um, and honestly, I am seeing trends in the forensic work that I'm doing that people are becoming more and more extreme ideologically in the U.S. This is happening. Oh, there's, no, there's no question about it. You know, um, you're talking about the Arabs of Dan Hussein. As you well know, the vast majority of the Jewish community in Iraq, it, it, the Jewish community of Iraq, obviously, is in the oldest Jewish community anywhere. That is including the Jews that live in Israel or Palestine in fact, or the, the Holy Land. So the Jewish Iraqi community is the oldest. Um, and some of them, in during Cyrus the Great, he asked them to go back and build the second temple. But this is, they are, they are absolutely right. So uh, the thing I, I want, you know, in 1952, 51, 52, as you know, there was a massive immigration of nearly all Jews from Iraq through Cyprus, and the, main, the most, vast majority end up in Israel. And that's in 1950. So apparently your parents did not leave in 1952. They stayed you know, behind. Am I right? They had to be, because if yeah. they live under Saddam Hussein, uh, that was after, after 1958, after the revolution. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so after the Farhud, my family still remained while uh, many of the Iraqi Jewish community left. Uh, I believe the estimates are about 150,000 Jews remained. Uh, my parents remained in Baghdad, and my father left in 1971. My mother, it, well, I should say, escaped. And my mother escaped in 1973. Uh, my father went through the north, and he was smuggled by the Kurds into Iran at the time. Yeah. And during the time, there was Operation Hamaya and Operation Ezra, and they were creating safe houses in surrounding countries. Um, my mother went through passage through Turkey uh, in order to get to Israel in 1973 with some of her siblings. Yeah, but you know, the, I, the, in fact, which I know, that's the vast majority of Iraqi left in the, between 50 and 53. Uh, what remain are, in fact, only a few hundred beyond that. As a matter of fact, not more than five, six hundred Jews altogether. One of them was my cousin that left behind. So so the basically the entire Jewish community left Iraq during these three years, which is, which is uh, very unusual, but it did happen. Um, uh, what is interesting, though, I, you might know, I'm sure you probably know this, Saddam Hussein, who was so brutal, after a number of years when he became the, the president, uh, he actually wanted the Jews, which is really ironic, the Jews to come back to Iran. 
And he declared that any Jew, any Iraqi Jew who wants to come back, that he will provide them with houses, with the comfort, and even willing to declare Jewish holidays to be national holidays. I mean, that was a story. It was not a story. Yeah, this one Saddam cannot be trusted. After, <laughs> I you know, but this is, this is yeah, I mean, I was a, I'm a president of this. Chambers. I mean, yeah, I'm, I heard this myself because I lived it for this time. And, but I was in Iraq when he was in power, but uh, I was told, leave as soon as you can because I was writing against the regime. So I left, I did not stay more than a few days there. But anyway, be that as it may, um, it's, it's what happened in Iraq is, um, uh, is heart-wrenching. And one more point I want to make, uh, to, to, to mention to you is that I deal with the Iraqi officials all the time, and with no exception, Paul, which is really amazing, with no exception, the way they lament the most, and they keep telling me, we, what we have lost, when we lost the Jewish community, half of Iraq basically was lost, because the Jewish community basically was the anchor you know, they were the bureaucracy. They were the doctors and the lawyers and the engineers and the businessmen. They, for all intent and purposes, Iraq was run by the Jewish community. And when they all left en masse, they missed the Jews. And they continue, you know, to this day, I mean, was telling me, I, learned, I only wish we have to get some Jews back to Iraq, <laughs> which is ironic at this point in time. Yeah. And it's interesting to think about that, like the the intellectual milieu and the prosperity that Iraq gained from having such a historic Jewish population and community to go back and question what was it that was going on in the mentality of the Arabs that helped them uh, condone and promote and participate um, in in kicking the Jews out and ostracizing them um, and participating in that. And so I think, you know, Paul and I, we, we hypothesize some things based on our studies of uh, terrorism and genocide and extremism all over the world. Yes. And that is that they are linked by an ideology and that those ideologies that lead to violence really separate society by those who are oppressed and those who are the oppressor. And once you allow yourself to think of things in that groupthink mentality, you can dehumanize and objectify the other, leading to an ideology that's driven by separating people into groups. And those ideologies that are affected by it become violent. Yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, we were witnessing some of that nowadays between Israel and the Palestinians. And the Israelis, in one form or, or another, are dehumanizing the Palestinians. I mean, what is happening in the in the West Bank, uh, the, the the ruthlessness, in my view, of the occupation, to me, is simply unacceptable. No matter what the Palestinians have done, because Israel today has all the power and the control it can exercise uh, throughout these territories. And um, recently, you know a flare up of violence in that area and the death toll that's taken place between the two sides, uh, it's extremely alarming. I mean, I'm writing a piece today, as a matter of fact, on that subject, the humanitarian crisis dimension 
of the Israeli Palestinian conflict, which is extremely, extremely worrisome. But I want to talk about your book rather than on, on what's happening. Uh, you know, you speak about the distinctive ideologies. Can you explain to our audience what you mean by that and how that's translated in terms of what it is, the distinctive ideologies you're speaking about? Uh, Paul, did you want to answer the oh, question? Sure, definitely. So um, let's start with this again. Our biggest concern are the divisions that are happening in the United States. Now, Emily and I have been around the world and we've been to most of the major genocide sites and certainly Emily's family in Iraq created a, a case study that we could look at. But but again, our, our issue is we're seeing these divisions that are cracking up and we're interested in and how does that happen? So I'm gonna answer your question in just a second about the sure. about what types of ideologies are there. But I think it's important to point out, you know, it, if you were to, if you look at this problem, it's not really an Arab-Israeli problem. It's not a, it's not a, a Jewish-German problem. It's not a, a Tutsi in Rwanda problem. There's something in the human condition that leads itself to do things that oftentimes are just simply extreme. So one of the examples that we like to use is, uh, we had some conversations with people who actually lived through uh, what happened in Bosnia. And one of the things that happened in Bosnia was that our troops in the very beginning, they began to see these big, large trenches through aerial photos, and they began to realize that they were trenches for mass graves. Right. Well, in one of the stories that we gained, uh, there were a group of American troops that went into Bosnia. They went up to a trench. Along the trench were a group of 40 people shoveling dirt down into this trench with a couple of big bulldozers shoveling dirt down on top of it. When they saw the American troops, they ran off. Um, when they ran off, the American troops, as they got to the edge, they realized the people in the ditch weren't even dead yet. There were children, babies, wow, wow. human beings in there crying, right, uh, begging to be saved. Here's the question. How do people get to that? How, how, does that? how does that happen that you stand on the side of that grave and throw down dirt on somebody who's still alive? And, and the reason that that question is important is uh, hopefully we never get to a genocide. But if we're looking at what's going on in the United States, comparing us to Nazi Germany, that's just too much. The, the Jewish community gets upset about that, and it is too extreme. But if you start looking at other political examples that have happened around the world, like what happened in Iraq, you begin to see that there are a series of factors that happen over and over again. So when you look at ideologies, not all ideologies are a problem, but there are ideologies that do become problematic. Those ideologies that become problematic, as Emily said a moment ago, they start by separating people based upon an oppressor and a victim. And once you do that, you gain the ability to begin to objectify the uh, who you see as being the oppressor. And that objectification gives you a justification in your mind for treating them in a bad way. So think about what's going on with the right and the left in the United States today. You know, on the far right, we have a group of people who are uh, what they call the, the new right or the, the neo right. This alt right that exists today, they have this view that uh, that as white people that they've been oppressed and they're blaming that on the liberal elite and on the news media and sometimes the Jewish community. But you can also go over to the, the woke left, the very far left, and you can find at times they also begin to see the world in terms of a power structure, the oppressed 
and the oppressor. And so they justify things like cancel culture and political correctness and ruining people's reputations, oftentimes that don't even deserve it. It's justified to them because they've begun to objectify the other side. So the question for us, and by the way, I'm, I'm very happy to be on your show just because you've done so much work on peace and diplomacy, trying to understand or, or hear from you on this question is important to me as well. But the question that we're interested in is, hey, how do we avoid this? How do we avoid letting people get to that stage? Recognizing that, you know, if you were a Jew in Iraq, you might blame Arabs. If you were a Jew in Germany, you might blame Germans. If you were a if you were a Muslim in Bosnia, you might blame Christians. All right. If you if you were a Tutsi, you blame the Hutus. But there's a human condition here that begins to happen. And we know from watching these things that there are a series of, of things that begin to happen that begin to have people identify based upon, uh, based upon their nationality or based upon the group that they're in. And we know that when that becomes problematic, it can result in extremism, it can result in terrorism, it can result in genocide, but all of them are tied to those ideologies that are advocating this power structure between the oppressed and the oppressor. So those are the ideologies that we're interested in. Now, Emily has done uh, evals on people who are in incel, which is a local, uh, I think the Justice Department has termed uh, that they're a terrorist organization. She's done it on radical Arabs, on uh, radical Muslims, I guess I should say. She's dealt with them on uh, people who've just been a part of the, this alt-right. The point I'm giving to you is increasingly as we're seeing those problems here, I was a mayor. I spent time in presidential campaigns. My interest is, as we watch those divides become created, is to think about what it is that we need to do to resolve them. And at least from my standpoint, it was fascinating writing this book with Emily because some of the preconceptions I had as to what might fix it ended up just not being true. Yeah, I mean, I, I just want to make, you know, when you mentioned the situation right here in the United States, two, two observations. One, when we talk about uh, ideology, the, the Republican Party, as we have known going back before the Trump era, uh, it is no longer the same party today. That's so if I were to ask you, what is the ideology today of the Republican Party? I think it would be very difficult to define it because their focus is no longer on, we used to speak about you know, small government, conservatism, they can talk about all of these issues that from their perspective is the way, the American way it should be. Uh, contrary to the leftists, they call the Democrats who are more to the left, more, more social programs, more of this, to which, so there was clarity in terms of ideology, in terms of approach. Today, the Republican party doesn't have that. I mean, some do, but I think they have, their focus has shifted dramatically. Why this, why that focus has shifted? And that is because, in my view, is a significant demographic changes that have taken place in the United States. And this is what terrifies the Republican today. That is, if election today uh, is held at free and fair, uh, the likelihood that the Republican Party may not see the White House again. And this is what you see happening. Republican Party today are doing everything they can on the state level to make sure that any election 
will turn out to be as much as they possibly can in their favor through gerrymandering, through all these, making it extremely difficult for white, for black and Hispanic to, to be able to vote, in different kind of registration, make it extremely difficult. This is why, for example, they they oppose the immigration of people coming from, from uh, South America, from, uh, like Trump said, why can't we get immigrants coming from Sweden instead of uh, from uh, Guatemala and, and Mexico? So the fear is this, by 1950, by in, in uh, actually by 1940 to 2045, all demographers attest that the vast majority, the majority of the American people will be black, Hispanic, and Asian. So the Republican, in my view, are terrified of the prospect that this is what's going to happen. Why Trump did? Obviously, Trump has the follow-up. This is the same quarter when a white supremacist that are, from their perspective, I didn't. I I have this house in the country, like many, you know, you don't see black people almost unanimously. They all support Trump. In fact, you don't want to talk loud about criticizing Trump in this part of, of the United States, which is which is horrific. So well, this is what we are seeing now: the Republican Party now trying to do everything they humanly can in order to to preserve power. And they try to do, and they will stop short of nothing in order to, to, to be able to do that. And that is what the conflict really is all about today. Why Trump? Because they needed a, a leader who is uh, uh, shameless, bold, uh, has no principles. Uh, but as long as he has these followers, they're going to follow him, they're going to be with him for as long as it takes. This is the Republican Party today. It's really corrupt to the bone. And when you ask the question, what can be done, what should be done, I really have a very difficult time to, to, to suggest this or that can, should should happen. Uh, uh, it's it's that we are in a very terrible uh, crossroad in this country right now, and I don't know where this is going to lead to. We can only hope, in my view, that the election, the next election, twenty twenty four, hopefully the Democrats could retain power. Uh, Biden may hopefully may well be elected, and perhaps then then Trump will eventually leave the political scene. But as long as Trump is around, and as long as he continues to enjoy the support of the majority of the Republican Party, we are, I believe, in deep trouble. So um, we have tried to answer the question, um, and it's a complex question to answer. I, you know, we we may be being a bit arrogant to think that we can solve the problem. Um, I don't think Emily or I or all three of us together could solve the problem. But I, I do think that there are ways to resolve it. But I don't think it's far away from diplomatic um, uh, questions that you've been involved with. You know, you, I think we have to start by recognizing our own accountability, the role that we play as individuals in this process, how are we contributing to it? And I'll just give you one light story. You know, my brother and I, uh, we would go running all the time. He was a Marine and one day when we're running, he's giving me some line about uh, Donald Trump. He was a supporter. And as he's telling me this line about him, uh, he starts spewing off some facts that I just didn't think were accurate. And so I said to him, I go, well, what'd you do? Get that from watching Fox News, right? Well, he got mad at me and he got <laughs> mad at me. We didn't talk for almost uh, six months. Now, on one hand, 
you know, he, he's a Marine. He, I, I, I told him he had to wear his big boy pants and not take it so <laughs> serious. But on the other hand, I didn't need to say that. I didn't need to insult him, insult where he was getting his news or his information, right? And, and I, I certainly didn't help anything. I didn't make it any better. I didn't change his mind. I didn't get him to move in any direction. Um, you know, it, it's not lost on me that sometimes we end up giving up on people that we love for people we don't even know. Neither he or, nor I know Donald Trump. Why, why should we allow this to come between us? The, the thing that I see that's happening is that we want to try, we need to do our best to try to understand where both of these groups are coming from, to understand where they're coming from, and, and to be able to, um, to be more empathetic towards them. So I'll just give you my, my read of the Trump group. I mean, imagine this, you're a, you're a white middle, uh, middle class worker. Uh, working in a factory, uh, some you know, someplace in the northeastern portion of this country, and um, civil rights and equal rights begin to happen. By the way, I've been a supporter of equal rights, civil rights, and human rights my whole life. Right, as, as mayor, I was kind of known for that. But I'm not naive enough to believe that it doesn't have a negative impact on people. There are some people who are negatively impacted by that. Uh, affirmative action has impacts on people, right? Um, and then you know, add to that some environmental regulations that maybe close down some of those plants and then add the Me Too movement where their friend gets fired because they said something they shouldn't say. And now they learn, hey, I need to shut up. I need to be careful what I say. Well, all of those things socially impact them. Now, again, add on top of that, if you want things like uh, globalization, which I'm a supporter of, but there were impacts from globalization. Some people got hurt from it. My point that I would give to you is when those people shut up, they become invisible. It's inevitable. Sooner or later, somebody's going to come by and they're going to say, hey, I see you. I understand where you're coming from. And when they do that, they'll be able to do anything they want, commit any crime, tell any lie, be as, as vulgar as they want to be. And that person's going to follow them because they've been seen. Now, the question for me is, I am a supporter of civil rights, equal rights, and human rights. But is there room enough for all of us here? I think there is, all right? I, I think that we need to think about that middle-class worker and what are the issues that are confronting them and how can we listen to them better and how can we make them feel a part of it? We are going to help things by, by promoting the divide by somehow or another insulting them in the process. So again, Emily and I came up with seven codes that we think are, are key, seven ideals that we think are key to being able to help fix the problem. Now, part of the answer has got to be political reform. And I think there is a real need for political reform, getting away from the partisan system that gives the extremes a disproportionate voice in the primary. Part of it's educational, making, you know, civics needs to become a bigger part of what we are doing so that people recognize the value of the individualism that we've implemented in this country. But part of it's also going to be individual responsibility and recognizing the role that each one of us play. Well, I mean, it, what you're saying is absolutely uh, true to the point. The problem is that you're going to need two to tango, so to speak. There is very little dialogue going on between the Republican and the Democrat. I mean, you have to start with by talking to begin a conversation. Where is this conversation? It's not really taking place. So this is the start of what, so therefore we need to look into how do we change the dynamics. I think for the Republican Party is a true, and as I see it, it's a really political survival. 
That's how they see it. That's why they are resorting to the extreme. Because for them, this is a political survival. If we do not follow this route, we are not going to exist as a, as a viable political party. And so, therefore, like any, any kind of conflict between certain parties, sometimes you're going to need a, 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 a real crisis, an explosion, in order to be able to sit down and actually begin a, a conversation. I have seen this in a time and again in various parts of the world. Uh, and, and as far as, for example, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, I'm saying now, probably there will be no resolution and there is a massive, massive explosion between the two sides. That's from where both sides are going to sustain such a horrifying losses, we can then realize that the only way is to sit down and to coexist peacefully. Going back to our situation here in the United States, as in my view, as long as, as Trump is around, I don't think that dialogue, that conversation between the two sides can take place. And I read very carefully, you know, the seven points he mentioned in, in the book. Uh, and, and I certainly agree with all of that. But are we today in a position to be able to begin to talk, to talk in these terms when, in fact, one party doesn't want to listen to anything? They give you a little bit of hopeful news. Um, so one of the most Republican states in the country is Alaska. Alaska uh, has uh, Senator Murkowski who uh, endorsed a change to their constitution that basically said instead of electing people in a partisan primary, everybody would run in a general election and then the top four vote getters would go to a runoff. That system was controversial, um, but it won. It was successful in a very Republican state. Uh, after becoming successful, they've held their first elections. I had on my show the other day, uh, the majority leader. Now the majority leader is a Republican. Uh, she was Republican before this whole uh, issue went into place and she opposed it. She said, you know, I think it's a bad idea. She on my show said, I was mistaken. This is one of the best changes that we've seen. They've actually included, even though it's an overwhelming majority of Republicans, they've included Democrats in their caucus. They've created communication between the different groups. She said, what's happened is because everybody now has to, you know, think about our country today. 85% of our seats are gerrymandered to the point where the person who wins the primary never even has a general election. So they never even have to go talk to anybody on the other side. Exactly. But exactly. In this election that now happens in Alaska, you have to talk to the other side because every voter has an ability to have a say on you. What it's done is it's begun to create an environment where being bombastic and being polarizing actually is no longer being rewarded. They're being rewarded for finding a way to cross the aisle and work with people on the other side. Now, there's no doubt in my mind, the extremes on both sides don't like that. But the point I would give to you is sometimes the problems based in the architecture of your political system. And the architecture of our political system today is fostering those divisions. It's, it's giving extremists a power beyond their actual numbers. Because again, when 85% of the seats are safe seats and less than 10% of the people vote in those primaries, it's not hard to see how it becomes very easy for those more extreme groups to have a say. Now, again, Emily and I focused on the individual responsibility. That's our seven ideals. 
but there are political reforms that can go along with that. And there are educational reforms as well. And yeah, I just that, add, go ahead, go ahead, please. There was something alone that you were saying um, that uh, about the dialogue and really trying to see, like, unless we can have the communication, sometimes we have to allow for this dismantling to occur and, and harm um, to exist in order for us to come to some kind of re resolution or repair. From a psychological perspective, and I think this is true also in the Middle Eastern conflict with the Israel and Palestine, seeing that once a person perceives an existential threat to what is being framed to them or even how they're thinking and digesting the information, when your mind is operating at that level, it's it's really rising this fight or flight limbic system survival mode. It is so hard to have that kind of higher level cognitive conversation, the ability to listen, to empathize, to understand, to process, to consider consequences, short-term and long-term consequences. I mean, all of those things really require our frontal lobe to, to be able to be activated. If you're living in this fight or flight response and seeing things constantly as an existential threat, you're, you're not gonna be able to do that. Um, so one of the other things Paul and I really looked at is how media and political, well, politicians and uh, are really capitalizing on this in the way that they're delivering messages uh, to raise their following. And they, they're they working to see, well, this group is feeling inferior. This other group is having a superiority over us. How do we capitalize on this and flip this scale? Uh, the problem is it becomes addictive because this dopaminergic system is becoming activated when you have this rush of dopamine and adrenaline. You want to prove that you, you're right. You want to squash the oppressor. You, you want to um, kill the challenger. You want to rise up above them. And once you're operating in that mode, there's no way to really have this kind of open dialogue that you're describing. So I think that's going to be a real challenge psychologically uh, in order to have some of these productive changes systemically that you're describing. But then how do you bring this about? For example, the example that you mentioned in Alaska, how can you translate this to a national, right, national scale? That's the problem we have today. And this is, I mean, it's a good example uh, but how do we how do we make it national? How do we how do we get this successful experiment there to be adopted given the political environment that exists today in the rest of forty nine states? Paul, I mean your your sure. comment so, on this. So Las Vegas Las Vegas just passed it last year. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Nevada just passed it last year. Uh, and uh, so Nevada is going to see a change. Oregon, their legislature just put it on the ballot. In Arizona, we're talking about putting an item on the ballot. There are nine different states right now that are actively engaged in the process. But what you were saying, what you said a moment ago, I think everything you said was accurate. It was true. There, there's a real reason for us to be worried and to be afraid. But we're not the only ones that see that. There are a lot of people in the country who are starting to say, okay, we need to be careful or this thing may fall apart. 
that's going to create political reform. Now, the media is harder because, I mean, what the media, Fox News said about six months ago, they said that uh, CNN hates America. I think they're half right. CNN hates half America and Fox hates the <laughs> other half, right? They, they, they're, they're constantly trying to pit us against one another. Now, part of that's the political system because they benefit by doing that. If you create an inability for them to win elections through that process, that changes even them. But I do think that the media needs to gain some responsibility in this and to recognize that if they're not careful, those protections that they have that protect their ability to operate, th those are not guaranteed. You know, we, we like to think that freedom is a universal value and history tells us that's not the case. I mean, I love our freedoms. I believe in what we're doing here. But when Rome fell apart in you know, 60 AD, from that point to 1776, there wasn't a democracy or a republic on the planet. It's, it's not lost on me. They're not universal. The third area, I think, is education. And, and I think our educational system today, um, I do think there's a reason for us to teach civics. We, I think we're forgetting the benefits that come from being in this country. Now, to me, that all comes back down to those words that said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men, all people are created equal and they're endowed upon by their creator with certain inalienable rights. What that was really doing, which that became the moral doctrine for the constitution. That was telling us that the focus on the individual, empowering the individual is what gives us our strength. In fact, I've seen a great many things that government has done. You know, we've built dams and bridges and roadways and even put men on the moon. But the greatest thing that we ever did as a country was we empowered the individual, government empowered the individual over itself. And that has created a massive differential way of looking at problems, at fixing problems, at, at creating solutions that don't all have to come from some centralized source. It's, it's an incredible power. And why am I talking about that? Uh, because I think sometimes we forget how important that is, how well that served, how well we're doing here in the United States. What, one last story. Um, when I was uh, a little boy, I can remember about 11 years old, I would run home every day because we were going to the moon, all right? And, and it was a big deal. So I had a chance to tell this story, by the way, to CNN, a, a group of reporters that were there. And I asked them the question during my meeting with them, hey, whose job is it to instill optimism? Whose job is it to give people hope? And their answer was, well, that's the politician's job, Mayor. And I said, okay, well, let me tell you what I saw. I went home uh, about uh, a month ago. This is now six months before today. But I said I had to sit down and work on spreadsheets. And I turned on CNN to watch what was going on. And all day long, all I saw were the Capitol riots. So I turned it over to Fox News. All day long, all I saw were a million immigrants coming from Haiti, right? Both of them terrifying their base about where they're coming from. Now, I think back to that story. When I was coming home, again, I knew the name of every astronaut. I knew the name of the people who worked in NASA. I watched the takeoff, the countdown, the flipping around of the camp, uh, the the capsule, the landing on the moon, and, and then them coming back. There was an immense sense of pride. Now, their point is, well, yeah, but it's different. The issues are different today. Okay, well, to begin with, that was competing with Watergate. So there were right. other issues, right? And here's number two. While I was watching CNN during that period of time, on Thursday, 
William Shatner comes on, the guy who used to be the captain on Star Trek. He had just gone in a capsule into outer space with one of the private sector groups who was competing with another private sector group to commercialize space. That's a massive story. And it's a story that has lots of intrigue to it and lots of things that we can feel good about, but it's ignored. It's ignored because the media is putting a huge focus on what makes them money. And what's making them money right now are feeding those niches. Again, here's my answer. If we want this to last, people are going to have to become more responsible, not only at the individual level, but at the media level. And we're also gonna to have to take a look at governmental reforms, political reforms, so that we can create a system that is designed to try to pull us together instead of one that's designed candidly to split us apart. No, no, I listen, I, I'm, I probably agree with you. The question is, how do you get to that point? I mean, the media today is not a, it's a freedom in the sense that you can say, almost say anything you want to say, but where is the scrutiny? Where is the real truth lies? Look what Fox is doing. Look what any some other outlets are doing. Um, they, they're getting away with murder in terms of this information they are spreading around. How do you get to the truth? I want to go over the seven points that you that you in your book, which is I think is very important uh, to, to, to deal with it. Know the truth. Let's begin with this. How do you know the truth given the environment in which we find ourselves today? The media is certainly not a source to where we can you can find the truth. Maybe with some exceptions here and there. But how do we find the truth? Because they have a created a new, a new a, a, you know, alternate truth. That's what CNN, what, start, what Fox is doing. Start by turning off, off the nightly news. Turn it off. Because the truth is, they can't give you the truth anymore. It's too hard for them. They're, they're, they're involved in this niche uh, economics, trying to pick up the piece of business that they want. But there are places that you can get not only truthful news, but you can get more optimistic information, podcasts. But that is if you choose to. You see, I, I spoke to the other person. I said, your views are so incredibly, you are so incorrect. You believe in things that are impossible. You, you, you worship what Trump or what the Fox is doing. Why is it? She said, well, I know I watch Fox 24-7. I said, that is exactly the problem. So if you really want to know the truth, I said to this person, why don't you watch some other channels, see what other people are saying in order for you at least to compare, to see. But that is exactly the problem. We, as people, uh, I'm, I'm say I watch MSNBC, uh, and I switch it, and I switch to ABC, I switch to occasionally I look at Fox News, just to make that comparison. But how do you get ordinary America, who is already locked into that ideology, or whatever it is, and they are looking for the out outlet in the media to feed them what they really want to hear. They don't want to hear different views. Look at what Fox News is happening with the, with the lawsuit. What happened. They actually make sure that they report things that the people want to hear, not with the news that they would like to bring to the people, but catering to the, what the people want to hear. That is the malaise in the media that we are experiencing today. And I honestly don't know how to change it, specifically because this is the source of money for the media. This is how they make their money. And, and, people turn so, off and I agree with you, that is where our problem is. So where do we find the truth? How do you find the truth? What do we do? 
And this is something you, you speak about in, in the book. Maybe Emily could elaborate a little bit on this. Well, I think there's a real important individual quest that has to happen here. If people are just driven towards what is um, helping them, what, what is sensationalized um, and exacerbating their anger, right? That becomes addictive. It's like, yes, fuel my anger because anger can make us feel powerful at the end of the day. So when you're saying this is what, it's not the media's fault. The media are only giving the people what they want. Well, okay, let's blame the people then. Okay, so where do we end this uh, this vicious? Well, that, that is exactly the point. How do you go about to find the truth? Because this is this is what what I've been struggling with in terms of where you know we do research. Everything I want to write about, I have to spend days sometimes to research the subject matter. Do I really find the whole truth, but nothing but the truth? I really doubt that very much indeed. Uh, but, but but this is, I mean, it's very, what you're saying in the book and, and, and this, at this particular point makes sense. But the question is, how do we go about it? Yeah, That's I what I struggle with in terms of practical step. What mm -hmm. practical step, Paul, can we take in order to get to that point? I think the most practical step that we can take is that we get people to begin talking about it. Here's an interesting statistic. I, I read polls all the time. I can tell you what percentage of the public watches Fox and what percentage watch CNN and, and uh, MSNBC. But interestingly enough, they both know on both sides the information they're getting is somewhat slighted. But more importantly, they're really upset about the divisions in America. There is an underlying prairie fire that is about ready to be lit because the public is tired of it. They're tired of our country being beaten up. They're tired of... Uh, us in these fights unnecessarily uh, amongst ourselves. They're tired of us not being able to talk about issues that, that candidly give people a greater sense of optimism. Now, again, how do we do that? We're doing it right now. You get enough people talking on enough podcasts, don't underestimate how powerful podcasts are becoming. They're playing an incredible role in beginning to shape public opinions. In fact, I would argue, I think they're going to be bigger than Fox News and CNN. But if enough people who are leaders like yourself and like us say, this isn't acceptable, what you're doing, you are intentionally flaming the fires, exactly like social medias, you're, you're doing it intentionally. I, I guess I believe enough in the goodwill of people who are involved in both of those that some conscience will arise and they'll say, hey, maybe we have a job of trying to balance this. Maybe we need to calm down a little bit. It won't happen if we don't at least try to hold them accountable and, and be able to forthrightly state what it is that they're doing wrong. But you know, I mean, I agree with you, for example, setting like this could be helpful. But on the other hand, social media have been a disaster in terms of misinformation, spread of misinformation. So on the one hand, this, this social media now that we are using it's very useful to spread the kind of discussion that we want people to hear. We want them to hear the truth. What, what do you do with the massive social media taking place where misinformation is really the, the core of the entire uh, you know, dialogue that's taking place? That is the problem. I, so what I'm saying is we must never give up in the search for the truth. That is my, the premise I go by. 
what I am saying is the road to reach to that point is long, treacherous, difficult, but we cannot give up. The question here for the for me as far when I look at, the, at this country and look at the, the is do we have the will? When you say about the public wants the tired, the sick and tired of what's going on. Are they sick and tired enough to a point where in the next election you're going to see decisive shift to the side of what's right? When it's still when they still put party above country to this very day, I have I have my concern is growing, not diminishing. Again, what we're doing, what should be done, should continue. We cannot give up. I'm concerned about the short. Yeah, I, and, and I guess I'm going to give you my opinion on the uh, um, on what's going to happen politically. Uh, this is just a prediction. Predictions are wrong all the time. But but I spent a lot of time in this in my life. Um, I'm an independent today. I was a Democratic mayor while I was mayor, but I'm an independent today. And I left the Democratic Party because I, I felt like oftentimes they didn't put the interests of the country over their own party interests either. I, I saw I see excesses on both sides. I agree. Um, now, saying that, um, you know, in polling nationally, here's what we see. The, uh, Joe Biden has uh, serious misgivings by independents. Take this to the bank. 90% of Democrats are going to vote for Joe Biden, up to 95%. 85% of the Republicans are going to vote for Donald Trump. Those are probably our two nominees. This decision is going to be made by independents. And here's what I will tell you independents are thinking if you put them into a poll on a block. Um, they don't think that Joe Biden represents their economic interests, and they think he's too old. They think that Donald Trump and the people that are supporting him will get rid of free elections. They'll hang on to Joe Biden, even though they don't think that his economic policies represent their interests, because they don't want to give up on free elections. Yeah, this is like in the lesser of two evils. That's that's what it comes down to. Yeah, do we can we afford to continue to live by basically selecting the two the lesser of two evils? I don't. I think we need to change that system. Personally, that is exactly right, and we're going to have to change the system, and that's what worries me because it will take time. And so, what what might happen to accelerate that process? Maybe we need uh, another major crisis. I don't know, and it could may very well happen next year. I don't know, but yeah. I prefer to have a crisis and change the dynamics. Of, of political dynamics of the country so that we can get to some kind of where we feel this is America the way we envision it. This is the America that I envisioned when I came to this country. Uh, and to me, see see what I see today deteriorating, I am extremely, I feel pain. I feel I feel the pain of what, what I, when I see what's, what's happening, um, you know, politically today. Can we go over some other points in the book? that uh, I'd like to, you know, the second point, maybe briefly, that you said your uniqueness entails you to the right to begin anew. Can you elaborate either of you on this on this point? Emily, do you want to take this one? Sure, yeah. You know, I think that the biggest thing is rather than seeing oneself as having a group identity that absolves you from responsibility, Paul and I really wanted to pick out the individuality and the responsibility that rests within each person. And I think as long as each person can see, 
I have a decision here. Do I just follow what I'm being told? Do I just allow my emotions to be toiled with by whatever it is that that I'm seeing? Do I want to exercise my power and control and choice to determine what I'm allowing myself to be influenced by? Can I ask myself the question, well, what are the motivations of the people that are behind the things that are creating this, that are influencing how I'm feeling and thinking and behaving? At what point do I want to say that's enough and make the choices for myself, allow myself it to have the courage to determine my own destiny. And, and I think that that is so important to be able to see what it is at the individual level. So this is why we're saying you have your own talents, you have your own uniqueness, exercise your self-agency, empower yourself. Don't just follow what you're being told or information that is being oversimplified for you. Um, don't just follow what it is that is making you feel powerful in the moment um, because it's not really built on something that has a strong foundation. Know your personal truth. What are you driven by? And, and I think that's really critical. I can't tell you how many people have come into my office. I'm so proud of them. Even first therapy session clients, and they say, I want to be the best version of myself. Can you help me? And I think that is the biggest question. And it's a noble quest. And I think the more people that are embarking on that journey, the more that they ask themselves, I had somebody in session today who said, you know, she was having a dialogue within herself. It was, it was an internal struggle. I'm making these decisions and it's hurting myself. I can't stop. And I said, well, what does the other part of you say? She says, I have this other part inside of me that says I'm too weak to do something different. And so I just allow myself to continue, but I know the outcome. The outcome is I'm going to continue being abused over here. I'm going to continue in this relationship that I know does not serve me anymore, but I'm too weak to be able to leave it. Just the fact that she was able to pull out that internal struggle and talk about it and identify it and have these two parts of her that are in conflict with herself, that is tremendous value and noble work. And the more people that we can promote to engage us, I will work with people one by one, one at a time. If that has to be my work, <laughs> that I well, that, that's what really needed the question. If maybe Paul can can you know elaborate on this. How do we translate what you just said? Which is absolutely correct to the collective. That is, that's what we are looking for. You know, how you do know. we get that into the into the community, the collective? How do we go about it? So. Um, I'm going to add to what Emily said that I think is important. I love Alexander Solzhenitsyn in the uh, Gulag Archipelago. I think it, it really summarized this point well. In each one of us is good and evil. Each one of us, right? And we, we tend to think about it in terms of we're good and they're evil. But the reality is all of us have a proclivity to do things that we shouldn't do and that aren't right. And, all, and, and also all of us have the ability to do things that are good things for other people. What ideology does is it allows us to be able to take that good and evil and to put evil onto another group and to escape the responsibility for the evil inside of us because we say, well, that group's evil. And so that justifies my ability to do what I need to do to them. That becomes part of a, of a large campaign that is about accountability. Now, again, 
when I talked about educational reforms a moment ago, I think that's one of the places where you put them is, is uh, you, if you're going to teach accountability, our schools are going to have to be one of those places that you do that with. I've worked with a college professor at Arizona State University, uh, gave a presentation in front of one of his programs, but he's done a great job of actually working at a national level, talking about what we can do from a civic standpoint to begin to change our educational system to help people understand the role that they play. Um, so in that, I think that that becomes, it's a religious effort of sorts, it's an individual effort of sorts, but it's also one that I think education can play a role in. In my, in my work, you know, I deal with aspect of the, that is, there is a psychological, uh, you know, factor here involved, that is, a psychological impediment, that is, do, do we need to identify that, you know, that is, for a person to be open, to be able to renew themselves, they're going to have to get rid of various psychological handicaps or, or impediments. Uh, and I mean, Emily's work, you know, you're helping these people to get rid of that um, preordinance of psychological uh, state. Uh, again, you know, for me, is that we have to project that into the larger setting, into the larger community. That is, to me, for example, in conflict resolution, I focus quite a bit on this, this, uh, the psychological dimension of the conflict. And before we can talk about this is mine, this is your, how can we divide the pie? We're going to have to settle that conflict, the psychological conflict that exists between the two sides by allowing both people to understand each other, where they come from, and why, and be without which suspicion is maintained, distrust is maintained, hatred is maintained. So to mitigate the psychological impediment, in my view, is, is central to the point you're trying to make. And again, on an individual basis, yes. Do we need, how do we get it into the public domain? And that's yeah, what- and I think identifying the taboos uh, with really raising the truth, not skirting around it. Um, talking about what are the real issues that are inherently here? What are people's vested interests? What are they deeply afraid of? And I, I don't necessarily agree with getting rid of the dark side because it will always exist. I think if you can confront it and name it, identify what function does it serve? Because once you can identify that, you can find a different way to resolve that need. I agree with you. You cannot get rid of that. I, I use the word deliberately mitigate. Mitigate that do not allow it to play a larger role. Than it's supposed to be in the mind of the individual. So, so we, we, we have a pretty much an agreement on that. I want to tackle another point if there's a meaning, and that is meaning over happiness. And maybe you want to elaborate uh, on that hierarchy because I think it's very important, just the same. Yeah, maybe I'll go first on this one. Um, you know, Emily and I are both big fans of Viktor Frankl. We think that Viktor Frankl is his book, uh, The Meaning of Life really does an incredible job of expressing what meaning uh, is about. And of course, he invented logotherapy, which was designed to, uh, to try to help people who were committing suicide. And then he took that into Auschwitz when he went into the concentration camp. It meant that it went from you know, 160 pounds down to 80 pounds that were living right on the edge of life, trying to find a way to give them meaning. I, I love his story that he talks about on the sunset. He said that 
you know, that he created this challenge for everybody to watch the sunset and then they'd talk about it before they went to sleep. Of course, they had to act like they were working or they actually had to be working. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to be out there. But the, you know, the, their discussions were about how other people in the world were watching the same sunset, how maybe their families were watching it in other places, how beautiful it was. They fell in love with it and, and it gave them a little bit of a purpose. He said that we gain purpose in three areas. I'm going to add one because I think Emily and I both think this fourth one is important. Um, and I, I suspect he actually meant that it was important as well. But the first one he said was love. Uh, and in love, he said it's about who or what you love and that, that that's important. In that case, they love those sunsets. He said it's what you create, uh, that what you create becomes important. And that can be a business, a piece of art, music, any one of a variety of things. Uh, he also said struggle, learning how to deal with struggle was important. Now, the one that Emily and I would add is service, um, that you can gain a sense of meaning through service to others as well. In fact, sometimes you can gain the greatest sense of meaning. Now, my guess is he would have put that under love or maybe a little bit of love and a little bit of create, but I, we think it's important enough to be pulled out by itself. It's a mistake to focus on happiness. Happiness comes and goes. If if somebody you love tomorrow passes away, you are not going to be happy. It's just that simple. And happiness can come and go all day long. But meaning is something that when you gain it, it can, it can endure when you're happy, when you're unhappy. It can endure bad events. It, it has an amazing ability to be resilient. And it is, it's finding that purpose in life that to me is what's most important. Now, there's no doubt about this. Finding meaning and purpose is the best way to beat addiction. And ideologies, especially those ideologies that are dangerous, they are in fact addictive. No, I, I fully agree. I mean, as I see it, meaning as a, as a tool by which to achieve happiness. And I think this is what you are suggesting. That is, we have to find meanings in what we are doing. So happiness can be sustained as long as we find meanings in what we are doing uh but but doesn't but doesn't necessarily mean we are we are always happy but but if we find meanings what we are doing whatever it is that we are doing that is going to give us sustain to a high extent how, how happy we feel about ourselves and and i think i agree with you no 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 question that this is what you're suggesting is absolutely the case let's go to i want to go to the other point this is leveraging yourself Let's maybe when I take a crack at it, it's your writing, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You know, I, I think these all tie in together while Paul and I wrote them as, you know, distinct and different codes. Another way to really conceptualize them is that they are all interrelated and they all really help one achieve this highest version of oneself. And so much of what we have to do, sometimes we have to self-sacrifice what we want in the immediate or what our immediate needs or desires or urges are driving us towards in order to really look at that long-term goal and that long-term vision. And so we may sacrifice things along the way. And humans, you know, in some ways we're so complex and in other ways, really, it just comes down to very simplistic things. I mean, the decades that I've been doing this work in psychology, 
um, like some of the core beliefs that really impair people is that they feel that they're unlovable. They feel that they're unworthy. They feel that they're inadequate. Um, and so, or they have these beliefs that they just have no value and they cover it up so well to even themselves. And they are constantly driven by things that are so superficial, uh, like fame and notoriety and money and wealth and power. And but, but, I mean, if I may, but this is, this is part and parcel of one characteristics. Just by the, the, the people who are listening to us, when you, when you say leveraging yourself, and all of this is you mentioned is part of our character, what do we leverage? How do you leverage? Yeah, consider- and, and I might add, I might uh, just give a, a small piece on this. So one of the things that definitely is happening on college campuses today and, um, and amongst families is there's this strong push to keep our children safe. And so in keeping them safe, we tend to isolate them. We pull them away from being able to be actively engaged in conflict. Uh, because we think that that's important to keep them safe. Now, college campuses are recognizing this all over the country, and that's part of what's been this push behind political authoritarians, people who, who believe that there should be a strict orthodoxy in terms of how they enforce a set of rules or norms. The idea of leveraging yourself starts with this in a democracy. It's the belief that we have an obligation to listen to people that maybe we don't agree with. And that by listening to people that we don't agree with, we don't become weaker, we become stronger. And no question now, about this. And, 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 the, and the opposite is happening in our country today. It, there's this sense of, I can't let you give your comments because I'm afraid that it's going to change this construct that I have in society. Um, we are both big believers obviously in free speech, but that's that's too simple. You know, free speech, you would think everyone would be in support of. What's more important to free speech is where do you place it on the hierarchy? If your value of safety, of, of psychological safety is more important than free speech, then you don't have free speech. It doesn't exist. Free speech has to be a value that we place back up at the top. And this is one where college universities need to have an adult in the room. You know, their need administrators need to play a role of saying, no, no, we may not like Ann Coulter, but Ann Coulter can have a right to speak on our campus just like anyone else can. And people who like Ann Coulter can have the right to go listen to her or Bill Maher or whoever it is that you've decided shouldn't have the ability to be there. But more importantly, and I think this is the biggest key, we think when we shut down the other person and we don't listen to them that it weakens them. It's not true. It weakens us. Uh, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I mean, this is actually the the malaise that we experience today. We don't listen. We don't want to hear somebody else's views, uh, because regardless, because we feel weaker, we feel uh, contradicted. Uh, we just don't want to hear opposing views to what we believe in. And so that dialogue and tolerance of each other views is the problem. The intolerance that we still we have. And that, needless to say, uh, ought to change. Uh, I just want to cover these points because I think our listeners would like to, okay, again, find power in love and connection. So, either of you. 
Um, I'll go first on this one. Um, and by the way, uh, Emily and I, we mostly agree on this, but sometimes we have some small disagreements. Um, <laughs> what, what I have found on this issue, first, you know, the Greeks separated love into seven different words, but I like Martin Luther King, who separated it into three. He said there was eros, which was kind of romantic love. Mm -hmm. He said there was philia or philio, which was a brotherly love. But then he said that there was this, this idea of agape, which was at the highest level. It was, it was a love that was almost divine because mm -hmm. it was the ability to love people that you don't even know or, the, or people that don't love you. Now, Martin Luther had a, a purpose for doing this. He knew that in America, when they walked up that bridge in Selma, that they were going to, that the one side would shout epitaphs at them and spit at them and maybe even uh, try to beat them or shoot at them. He knew that if they fought back, that America would know who was at fault. He knew that by instead singing and expressing joy and love, while what the other side was creating was showing hatred and anger and a angry attitude, that the public would have a, a better idea of who was being right. And he trusted in the general public. But I'd go beyond that. And here's where I go beyond it, is that we have a... Uh, that that when we show love to hatred, the other side doesn't know how to react. There's no defense to love at the end of the day. Here's what I'm positive of. And, and I am, I told you, I was a Democratic mayor. I'm an independent today. It is not beyond me to get mad at the other side for things that I see that they're doing. But I don't know that we're going to make our lives better by trying to seek revenge on people that we disagree with. I think it's going to be important in, in our process in America to, to forgive one another, to move on. If you, know, if you really want to be patriotic, here's what I'd say to most people, quit insulting other Americans. We're spending a lot of time insulting other Americans today on every Twitter feed and Facebook and social marketing. It, it's okay. You know, I'm, I'm fascinated by many of the things you say and, and agree with you on much, but I know that there are areas that we disagree in too, and that's okay. We can not only grant one another the right to say it, gain strength from it, but also forgive one another when we think that they went further than maybe they should have. Yeah, yeah. And you want to add to that, uh, Emily? It gives us opportunity to really reflect and grow. And um, I know when Paul talks about love, uh, he also advocates for forgiveness. And I think, oh my gosh, it is so powerful uh, psychologically at an individual level, at a community level, at a national level. Um, and it can be very hard to forgive someone that you feel you've been maligned by. Um, and it may not be in psychological terms that we say, well, don't just give like a global statement be specific about what you're forgiving and what are you willing to let go of? Because really it's very toxic for the individual to hold that within themselves. If you can find love for your enemy, that is powerful. If you can find an opportunity to forgive and let go, that is healthy and healing for you so that you're not holding on to that anger and resentment. You know, every year, we we have our celebration right of and uh, rosh hashanah and yom kippur and we do a day of atonement and we fast we don't even drink water we don't eat food 
and we reflect on our sins and we ask for forgiveness from people that we've even held bad thoughts. Maybe we didn't engage in any bad acts, but maybe even just having negative thoughts towards them. I think this is important as part of our process. And this helps us to experience and practice love and connection. No, I, I, I cannot uh, agree with you more that there's no question that I would, you know, um, I would love to have more conversation on it, but for this, for, because of the time limitation, I, I want to cover the last couple of points that you have, we, not me, it is quite obvious, but uh, again, I'd love to hear your elaboration on me, not uh, uh, we, not me. Yeah, I'm happy to elaborate on this. Uh, you know, I think it follows well from the last point that Paul had just mm -hmm. spoken about. So much of what we do can be self-serving. And we think about, well, what am I going to gain from this negotiation? And what what am I going to gain from this interaction with this person? Um, and And I think that in order to achieve this higher version of ourselves, it's important to be selfless as well and really consider well i am also gaining from the sense of belonging and commitment i can't tell you how much with the forensic work that i do in assessing um, people who are convicted for very serious crimes um, and their histories and their background and their childhood and just seeing this real disenfranchised identity just having no sense or a real limited sense of belonging and commitment. They, they have this disenfranchised community. And I think it's so important for our personal welfare, as well as at a societal level, um, being able to feel like I'm participating in something that I'm getting something back from. I'm giving to my community. And I know that is enriching me. I may not be able to see it directly, but I know that there's this interaction that's important that's there. And so seeing yourself as having um, this communal identity and that you're connected to is such an important protective factor. There's no question on being a part of the whole uh, that, that's enhancing one's, one's power rather than diminishing it. Uh, Paul, do you want to comment further on this? Uh... Oh, I think Emily covered that one beautifully. I'm, uh, I'll, I'll just go ahead and leave it with that. <laughs> So let's go to the final one. Believe in you, believe in us, and act with that belief. Uh, I'll, I'll start with this one. Um, look, we, we belong to something special here. And I, I think that it's easy to forget that, um, that we have created something unique in the world. There's never been a period of time in history, any place else in the world, that has done more for human progress than we have right here and right now. There's just no doubt about it. We've accomplished amazing things and we can be proud of the fact that we are a part of that. For me, believing is about being willing to take a risk. It's about being willing to know that sometimes that if we let go of our own ego and we set that aside a little bit, that we can accomplish great results. One of my favorite stories, uh, I, I can't remember the name of the jazz singer, but he's a beautiful human being who would play jazz in this little bar. And one night, this guy came up to him. He was uh, African-American. The other guy was a white guy. And he said, hey, he says, I want you to know I really like your jazz music. He says, but I also want you to know I've been, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And he said, uh, and I just don't 
you know, I, I, I have a problem with you because you're black and because he saw him as an inferior race. So the jazz singer says, well, hang on a minute. He goes, let me buy you a drink. So he sits down and he says, so why do you feel that way? So what causes you to see me that way? So what is it that you think that I've done to cause this? And the guy vents, he tells him everything. He, he never counters him. He just says, well, I appreciate it. Buys him a drink. Another week goes by, the guy comes back to see him again. Comes back the third week to see him again. Finally, he comes back on the third week. He says, hey, I want to tell you something. He says, uh, I'm, I'm going to give you my Ku Klux Klan hat. I quit. And I, and I brought a couple of other guys who were in the Ku Klux Klan. I'd like you to talk to them. So he starts talking to them. Well, somewhere along the line, this jazz singer says that a couple of his black friends say to him, hey, we're looking around the room that are here and we know some of these guys and these are like Ku Klux Klan members. You got to be careful who you're hanging out with. And he said, I don't judge my life by who I'm hanging out with. I judge my life by how many Ku Klux Klan hats I have hanging in my garage. <laughs> this is so good. Yes. <laughs> you know, we, if, if we believe, if we're willing to believe that in fact we can pull this together, we can. But if we believe we can't, then this thing that's very special is going to fall apart. And I just tell people to start with the belief of, man, you belong to something amazing. You're an American. Like it or not, that is an amazing thing. Yes, we have to go back to that as America. So, so Emily, you're, yeah, the last word is yours today. <laughs> I hope Paul doesn't mind. <laughs> oh. oh, well, thank you. <laughs> you know, um, I think when we feel stuck and we feel frustrated um, and it's hard to see a way out, of a situation um, and uh, it, we can um, experience a, a real loss in, in our spirit and in, in our hope. And it can be hard sometimes to really have that vision. And sometimes I really sit in deep darkness with people and that's all we do. The fact that they're not alone and that they know that they're not alone even if we can't see the light, that there's still some hope because they don't have to endure the suffering alone. I think if we can extend that to each other, we've succeeded. If we can go beyond that and see the hope and see the light and have the vision and build the road and see the pathway and get some other people on board with us. And yeah, I think that that is also very powerful. And it's okay to vacillate. It's okay to fall back. It's okay to fail. It's okay to say, you know what? I'm going to get up and start tomorrow as a new day. And that took a lot of courage. And sometimes courage is not a lion's roar. It's just a little whisper inside mm -hmm. of us. And, and I think it goes back to life is precious. Life is fleeting. We can't expect to be here tomorrow. We can't expect that the people that we love and cherish are going to be here tomorrow. What the heck do you want to make of your life today? This is all we have. So true. So true. You know, we, we could continue this conversation for another hour and a half. <laughs> Maybe we should some, have another podcast. Let's continue it for a lifetime. <laughs> That's my plan. <laughs> I want to thank you both so much for taking the time. I think it was wonderful, at least from my perspective. 
I hope you feel the same way. Absolutely. I, oh, I think uh, it's been an honor just being on your program and thank you both again. I look yeah. forward to see we to see you in person, one way or the other. Really on all that you've done and accomplished alone. It's really such impressive work. Yeah, thank you again. Thank you. Thank, you. All the best. thank you for listening to this episode on the issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.